Good morning and welcome to today's edition of Reflections on the Scriptures. My name is Murray Shanks. I've called the message today the beauty of submission, but I seriously doubt that there would be many people who would think of submission as being something beautiful or something to be encouraged or applauded. There's something about the idea of submission which inherently kind of rubs us the wrong way, isn't there? Yet submission is very much a part of walking the way Jesus would have us walk. Today we come to a passage of scripture which speaks about submission and in recent decades, the last 40 or so years, has caused angst amongst some people, mainly for women and mainly married women. In fact, I can remember about 20 years ago, whilst attending a small group Bible study, sitting next to a young lady. Now, it wasn't my wife, Louise, in case you were wondering. She was probably sitting on my other side. I noticed that this young lady had blotted out, literally uh, scribbled out, the passage we are going to look at today. I knew her to be a, a serious, committed Christian, and I really couldn't imagine why she would attack the Word of God like that. Yet she had. And when I asked her why on earth she'd done that, she simply replied, that part's wrong. I'm not going to do that. At that stage, she wasn't married. Today, she is married. I'm not sure whether she's continued to edit every Bible she's ever owned. And really, that's between herself and God. But it does serve to illustrate well how this particular passage has sharply divided people who, on all sorts of other issues, are more than happy to submit to the authority of Scripture. So let's turn to God's Word, and in doing so, let's try to come afresh to the Word of God with a prayer on our lips which simply says, Lord, speak truth to me today through your Word. And may I have the courage to hear and accept what your Holy Spirit wants to say to me today. So let's open the Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold, jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The Greek historian Plutarch, in his essay, Advice to Bride and Groom, written very near the time that Peter wrote his letter, said, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it's proper for a wife to recognise only those gods whom her husband worships. Now, clearly, Plutarch reflects the culture into which Peter is writing. It was a pluralist culture. In other words, it was a culture where many, many different gods were worshipped. And the status of women generally was so much lower than we could barely imagine. The accepted norm was that the married woman would worship her husband's gods. But what should a Christian woman do? If her husband was converted, it became somewhat simpler. They would both worship Jesus. But what if the woman 
came to Christ without her husband. And now she worshipped the one and only living God, but he continued to worship idols made of wood and stone. How was she to live on a day-to-day basis? Obviously, her ultimate loyalty was to Christ. She must obey Christ before anyone else. But how was she to relate to her husband on a day-to-day basis? And how might she live so as to bring him to Christ as well? Well, Peter says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. I want you to notice this. Peter didn't say, women be submissive to men, as some men would like to think. Here, Peter is speaking about wives being submissive to their own husbands as a function of order within the home. A wife's place within the Christian home, according to this passage of scripture, is under the leadership of her husband, whom God has placed as head of the home. Shortly, we'll hear what God's word has to say to husbands about how that leadership looks. But for the moment, let's just focus on wives. God, in his wisdom, has decided that wives should submit to their husbands. That is, that they should come under the headship of their husband. And in the same way, husbands must come under the headship of Christ. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, this is Ephesians 5, verse 22, he said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Over the years, I've discussed this passage with a, a number of people. I remember a conversation I had with my good friend and co-worker in pastoral ministry, Keith Ham. We were speaking about this passage and we realised that we'd never come across a Christian wife who wasn't willing to submit to her husband if he was in turn submitted to Christ. When teaching about Christian households to the Colossians, Paul said, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then when Paul was making some general comments about how Christians should live, making reference to older men and then older women, younger men and younger women, etc., he says there, he says, Wives should be kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's Titus 2 verse 5. So it's very clear from Scripture that God's will is that there be a hierarchy of submission within the family and within marriage. But what of this notion of submission generally? As I said at the start, there's something about the idea of submission which inherently rubs us the wrong way. Everyone wants to be happy, everyone wants to be blessed, but rarely do we hear people speak of desiring a submissive spirit. Personally, I found this very challenging as I worked through this passage. The more I thought and read and prayed about it, the more I came to realise that God has built submission into the very fabric of the universe. All created things fall very specifically, it seems, into a delicately balanced, God-ordained submission hierarchy. You think about it for a moment. All mass submits to the authority of gravity. It doesn't matter whether it's a grain of sand, a massive planet like Jupiter, or a whole galaxy. Gravity has authority because of the nature of the fabric of space-time, and mass will submit. Darkness 
always submits in the presence of light because there is no such thing as darkness. There is only the absence of light. Softer materials like timber submit when harder materials like steel are struck against them. All animals and plants fall somewhere in the food chain, being forced to submit to those higher up the chain. There is a God-ordained submission hierarchy within the universe. In Genesis 1 verse 28, we read of the first man and woman. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The man and woman were to rule the earth. They were to make sure that all the earth submitted to their God-given authority as they cared for God's good earth. And we've seen this general rule already in previous chapters of Peter's letter. Christians are to be subject to government authorities and servants are to be subject to their masters. Today, he would say, employees, submit to your employers. The more I looked, the more I came to see this truth. Submission is everywhere and it pleases the Lord. The pages of scripture are full of teaching on submission. Think about the life of Jesus, the the incarnation, the Son of God coming to earth from heaven, becoming human. It's all about submission. In fact, in my opinion, it is the ultimate submission example. The Son of God, though being co-equal with the Father in glory and power and majesty, was submissive to his Father's will. He was then, somehow, through the power of God, packed into the DNA of a single human cell, conceived in a human womb, where after nine months was delivered through the very flesh and blood he himself had created. The submission of Jesus to his Father's will, demonstrated through the Incarnation, is extraordinarily profound. But it doesn't end there. In Luke's Gospel, we read of Jesus as a young boy. It says, this is Luke 2 verse 51, And he went down with them, that is his parents, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Once again, the creator of the universe, the son of God, choosing to be submissive to his creation, to his earthly parents, for the glory of God. Time and time again, we see Jesus modelling for us a submissive life. At his baptism, a baptism of repentance for sin, the sinless son of God submits to the father's will in order to fulfil all righteousness. Throughout his ministry, we find Jesus saying, I only do what I see the father doing. In other words, he lays aside his own agenda for the Father's agenda. And ultimately, in the end, Jesus submits to his Father's will amidst blood and tears in the Garden of Gethsemane as he kneels to pray, not my will, but yours be done. And then in the following hours, every step is a step of submission. Submission to the Jewish temple guard. Submission to the religious authorities, submission to the Roman soldiers and the horrors of the whip, submission to the agonies of a Roman cross. And then, in a stunning act of submission, the author of life willingly submits to death on our behalf. The verses just prior to our passage today speak of this. 1 Peter 2 verse 22 says, Listen, For the submission woven throughout these verses, it says, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, 
he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus modelled it, and his word now calls us to a life of submission. I'm not sure how you feel about that. I know it makes me feel uncomfortable in many ways, yet there is a level of comfort which comes from knowing that he's God and I'm not. He's in control and I'm not. He's the boss and I'm not. It's his problem, not mine. The word of God calls us to a life of submission. You have a look. Citizens are called to be subject to government authorities. We find that in Romans 1 and Titus 3 and 1 Peter 2. Church members are called to be subject to church leaders. We find that in 1 Corinthians 16 and 1 Peter 5. Wives are called to be subject to their husbands. We find that in Colossians 3, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians 5. The church is called to be subject to Christ, Ephesians 5, verse 24. Servants are called to be subject to their masters, Titus 2 and 1 Peter 2. All Christians are called to be subject to God and to one another, Hebrews 12, James 4, Ephesians 5. The word of God calls all of us to a life of submission. So that with that in mind, Peter says, Wives, submit to your husbands. And he gives us the reason why. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. There is a reason for this. There is a reason wives are called to submit to their husbands because they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. He then goes on to speak about beauty, real beauty. Now, I want you to notice that Peter's not suggesting that beauty doesn't matter, that it's not important. Clearly, beauty matters to God. He's created a beautiful world. It is full of beauty. And it's important that we are attractive to other people. The underlying question, however, is what is real beauty? The world will tell you that beauty lies in the way you look, how clear your skin is, the symmetry of your features and the proportions of your face the slimness of your waist, the size of your breast, the colour of your hair and the the cut of your buns. The world will tell you that's where real beauty lies, it's skin deep. But the word of God paints a very different picture. Peter says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead it should be that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. As one gets older, one realises just how fleeting, skin-deep beauty really is. Recently, I discovered a whole heap of family photos that my dad had collected and were stored on a hard disk. As I looked through those photos, I recognised family members who were now in their 60s and 70s, In many of the photos, these people were beautiful young teenagers with straight backs and colour in their cheeks and hair. Their teeth were white and straight. They were once really beautiful. I love them dearly, but I don't think that today I would say that they were physically beautiful as they were when they were teenagers. But beauty, that kind of beauty just doesn't last, does it? And it doesn't last for anyone. 
Now, some have argued that this passage forbids women from braiding their hair or wearing jewellery, and as a result, the women in Christian communities who hold to this view look somewhat drab in the way they dress. This passage is not saying that. A close look at the original Greek reveals that there's no word fine in front of clothes. It literally says braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and clothes. If you want to argue that this verse is forbidding women from braiding their hair and wearing gold jewellery, you'd also have to forbid them from wearing clothes, period. And I don't believe God wants women walking around stark naked. No, I think Peter's simply saying, it's okay to dress up, to do something nice with your hair, to wear jewellery if you want to, to wear clothes even, maybe even nice clothes. But remember where your real beauty lies. Real beauty lies in the inner self, in the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. That's what it says. God smiles at the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Verse 5 For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. That's an interesting expression, is it not? You are her daughters. That is, you are heirs to the covenant promises of God, literally the children of Abraham and Sarah. You are her daughters. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear. In other words, your trust is in God. You do not fear because of your great trust and faith in God. You have a gentle and quiet spirit because you do not have to fight for blessing. You know that God is a God of abundant blessings. And there's more than enough blessing to go around. You know that God is a good God. You know that God is just. And you rest in that. Peter then moves to husbands. Now, guys, there's a whole heap packed into these words that will shape your life so that it is God-honoring and your wife will love you if you let these words impact and change you. Verse 7 says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let's pull this apart. Verse 7, husbands in the same way. In what way? What way has Peter been speaking about for the last 18 verses? In a submissive, God-honouring way. That's the way. Peter says, husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives. In other words, submit yourselves to treating your wife with great consideration as you live with her on a day-to-day -day basis, as you live your life together as one flesh. He says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Some translations have treat them with honour as the weaker partner. Husbands, we are to use our authority within the marriage for the good of our wives, for the good of our marriage, for the good of our children, and for the glory of God. That is how we treat them with honour. We use our god given authority within the family to honour and bless and serve our wives. You know, in 1995, we moved to live on campus at Morling Theological College. It had taken us nearly a decade to get there. I was completing a degree in design. Louise was completing her nursing and midwifery training. We had a couple of kids and there were a number of reasons why it took so long to get there. My theological training was to take four years. 
But 18 months into the course, I found myself sitting under a tree thinking about my marriage and my family. That morning in mid-1996, I came to realise that for our whole married life, Louise had been helping me achieve what I wanted to achieve in my career. She had been the loving, godly, dutiful, submissive wife. And largely, that meant she'd laid aside her dreams and her aspirations in deference to mine. That morning, I decided that I was going to do whatever I needed to do to help Louise achieve what God was calling her to do, alongside what God was calling me to do. And if that meant that I had to leave college, we would leave college. Within a couple of weeks, we were out of there. I got a really ordinary job selling computers, and Louise got a really great job managing a home nursing service. Over the following years, Louise had some wonderful experiences as a midwife, and I mowed a lot of lawns. When I look back on that decision, and it really was my decision, I used my authority within our marriage to make that decision. I mean, obviously, we discussed it together, but in the end, it was my decision. If I'd wanted to stay at college, I'm sure we will have, would have stayed at college. That decision led to a stronger, healthier, happier, more godly marriage. It led to a far more satisfied and fulfilled wife, and ultimately a far more effective ministry. And praise God, this week we celebrate 30 years of marriage together. In Ephesians 5, verse 22, we read, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. We're called to love our wives just as Christ loved the church, laying down our lives for our wives. I've made more mistakes in my marriage than I can count. You ask my wife. But that decision, the decision to leave college and to rebalance some of the imbalance in our lives, in hindsight, was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And the fruit of that good decision continues to be seen. Interestingly, we both eventually went back to Morling College some years later and both completed theological education and both became pastors. I think that's what Peter's getting at. Guys, we have to use our God-given authority to serve, not our own ends, but those who have been entrusted to our care, that is, our wives and our kids. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. We've talked a fair bit about judgment in the last weeks, about how we will have to give an account for what we've done following our salvation with the blessings of God. Guys, I really believe that one of the first things you're going to have to give an account for before God is your marriage. A godly marriage is a powerful conduit of God's blessing into the world. God uses marriages and families to bless others. The question is, how are you going with stewarding your marriage? Is your marriage a blessing to others? How are you going in honouring and respecting your wife? How are you going with the use of your God-given authority within the marriage? How are you going with the use of your power? Yes, you are physically stronger and more powerful than your wife. That's how God's made us. Are you using your power and strength to provide a safe haven for her? Are you using it to intimidate and dominate her? These are challenging questions for us blokes. I hope you realise that no one else will be held accountable for your wife's honour and respect. You're the guy. You're the husband of your wife. 
You're the father of your kids. And ultimately, no one else can be those two things. Do you get what I'm saying? God has entrusted this woman to your care. She is a delicate and precious gift, entrusted by God into your care. And you will be held accountable for her emotional, spiritual and physical well-being. No one else will be asked about my wife's care. No one else will be asked about my children's nurture and care. That is my God-given responsibility. And ultimately, I will be held accountable for my actions or lack thereof. I don't need, I think, to point out how dreadfully some men treat their wives, even Christian men. I want you to notice Peter finishes by saying, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Don't be under any misapprehension here. Your spiritual effectiveness is directly related to the authenticity of your prayer life, right? You're not going to achieve anything in God that doesn't start with prayer, right? Peter's saying, God is concerned about how you relate as husband and wife. The health and integrity of your marriage greatly matters to God. Your prayers will fall on deaf ears if you fail to honour and respect your marriage and your wife. These are sobering, challenging words, are they not? May the Lord bless you as you consider them. Amen.